1: I am your host, Madina Tiam. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Mauro Nobili. Dr. Nobili is an assistant professor of history at the University of Illinois in Urbana Champaign. He is also the author of a brand new book Sultan, Caliph, and the Renewer of the Faith Ahmed Lobo, the Tariqa Fatash, and the Making of an Islamic State in West Africa. The book just came out with Cambridge University Press in 2020, and I'm very excited to discuss it today with Dr. Nobili. Mauro, welcome on the show.
2: Thank you very much, Medina. Thank you for your invitation.
1: Um, Yeah, of course. um, I was, as I told you, I was very happy to get a chance to talk about the book. And before we actually go on and do that, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Can you walk us through your background a little bit, the kind of historical work that you do and how you came to do that work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this. So I I would start actually with a sort of more of a personal uh, history of how we arrived to work on uh, West Africa. And then I will uh, uh, take you to how I ended up working on this particular project, uh, which is becoming basically almost synonym of my entire academic life so far. Because I've been interested in West Africa and glad to, uh, to to been able to travel to West Africa well before I became an academic. Okay. So I, I come from southern Italy, and I was born uh, in a neighborhood that was basically from the 1990s uh, the neighbors of West African migrants, you know, Senegalese, the Malians, Burkina Begganians, etc., uh, in, uh, in in this city, in Naples, my hometown. So uh, I kind of got attracted by uh, West African uh, community, the West African community, especially by West African history, well before I decided that this would have become uh, uh, my own, uh, I would say, field uh, of work. So. Interested by uh, the West African community, Muslim immigrant communities in southern Italy, I enrolled in an African studies program at the University of uh, Napoli, Lorientale, and it is there that basically I did my entire uh, education, uh, all the way to my master uh, and during my PhD. So the thing that attracted me the most uh, was specifically how much Islam uh, as a religion had shaped the uh, lives of, uh, of my, uh, I would say, uh, immigrants living with me uh, in my area. So I realized that uh, my interest in African studies laid specifically in the history of African Muslim societies. So I was glad to take Arabic. I studied Arabic Islamic studies and basically double majoring in African studies and Islamic studies. So when I went for my PhD, I decided that I wanted to uh, work on Mali and specifically that I wanted to work uh, on uh, Mali by reading uh, Arabic manuscripts written by African Muslim uh, scholars, specifically by Muslim uh, uh, scholars from uh, from Mali. So at the time, my at- attention was attracted on uh, a very little known collection of manuscripts uh, in Paris that is called the Fons de Gironco, so the de Gironco collection that is housed today at uh, Institut de France. So I was studying these 12 uh, um, you know, volumes uh, of uh, manuscripts from mainly Mali, Niger, uh, and a little bit of Nigeria. Well, I basically my eyes were caught uh, by a very strange little document. So the document was known, uh, was written, was described as the Tarikh al fatash So it is a summary, this manuscript uh, of a chronicle uh, that was, I mean, is very familiar, I would say, to every historian of West Africa because it was published uh, in uh, in a French translation. Uh, In 1913 in Paris by two very famous scholars of the colonial period of Tavudas and uh, Maurice de la Fosse. So it has been widely used uh, in his uh, uh, his translations uh, despite substantial problems uh, of authorship and authenticity. There was a substantial problem, as I'm saying, with this document because the text of the manuscript explicitly ascribed the chronicle to a character that never popped up in the extensive literature that was produced on the Tarikh al Fatash, So at the same time, I was kind of attracted by this thing, but also kind of puzzle troubled. Honestly, at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I sensed that the manuscript was important. I translated it in my dissertation as an appendix. uh, And, you know, I honestly just mentioned that this was an interesting manuscript that made little sense with our knowledge of the history of West Africa. And then I moved on. I mean. I thought I would have moved on, uh, because in fact the Chronicle followed me in three continents basically, and I continued working on it for a decade because I worked on it when I left uh, uh, Naples uh, to move to the University of Hamburg, where I, w- I wrote like a, a little piece uh, on a uh, sort of newsletter of the Center that was called, uh, of the Center for Manuscript Culture at the University of Hamburg, it was called the Manuscript of the Month. And then I moved to South Africa in Cape Town, uh, Where actually my book project, uh, the one that I completed this year, uh, started taking shape. So in Cape Town, I was a postdoctoral student uh, at the Department of Religious Studies, as well as in the Timbuktu manuscript project uh, that was led by uh, Shamil Jeffy. And I would say that the time in Cape Town was by far the most formative period uh, of my uh, academic life. And as I like always to describe Shamil, Shamil is a visionary. And the Timbuktu project uh, was basically the result of his vision of a pan-African project, bringing together scholars who are interested in Islamic literature from all over the continent. From you know, of course, from Mali, from Senegal, from Ghana, from Niger, from Nigeria, from um, Mozambique, from Ethiopia, uh, etc. And you know, we are all working very close. And at a certain point in time, in fact, uh, sharing uh, like a big house uh, in one of the uh, neighbors of the uh, of Cape Town, not that far from the University of Cape Town. So among the people that I was glad to meet uh, during that time uh, was the former director of the Ahmed Bada Institute of Timbuktu, with this major repository of manuscripts uh, that was founded in the early 1970s and uh, is now in the between Timbuktu, split between Timbuktu. And uh, Bamako. So I met the former director, Abdul Kadri Maiga, who was really the first person who gave t- to me access uh, to the large collection of manuscripts of the center. And then uh, also, I got very close to, uh, I mean, to now my good friend, Dr. Mohamed Jagayeti, who is the current director of the Ahmed Baba. You know, at the time, uh, it was uh, the summer of 2012, uh, uh, Dr. Jagayeti was involved uh, in the famous, you know, snaggling of the Timbuktu manuscript from northern Mali. You know, during the time of the uh, occupation of the cities by a series of jihadist groups, so I I think that at that moment, so while in Cape Town, uh, I had with me all uh, the materials that I needed to start making sense uh, of the complicated story of the Tarikh al-Wataj. So I had this unusual manuscript from the De Gironco collection. I had several manuscripts from Timbuktu. I mean, digital copies, of course, of manuscripts from. uh, Timbuktu, but also guidance, uh, you know, of leading uh, scholars about West Africa, but also leading scholars from West Africa and especially from uh, Timbuktu. So basically, I think that all the pieces for me to work on the Chronicle properly were now in place. But I think I should stop here because otherwise I'll be the only one talking. So please, Medina.
1: I mean, I could go on and listen to you. Um and it's, it's so nice that you mentioned all of these scholars and this, this house in Cape Town. I didn't know about it. It sounds great because it really shows also how, you know, the, the way your thinking comes to be shaped. It's really a collaborative process um, in a way. And I want to go back to the to the manuscript. I want to go back to the Tariq Fatash because it is really the manuscript that grounds your book. Um, that the book is centered around. And as you explain also, it is really a manuscript that has captured the attention of scholars for well over a century. Um, so tell us a little
2: bit more about, about it. What is this manuscript? So, the Tarif al-Fatash. The Tarif al-Fatash is a chronicle. It's a historical chronicle that, uh, you know, it attracted uh, the, the um, interest of Western scholars uh, since the very beginning of the colonial period. So when the French entered Timbuktu in the late uh, you know, in uh, 1893, and then eventually they maintained control of the city uh, the year after, a French journalist, Félix Dubois, he arrived in Timbuktu to document for his French public uh, the uh, conquest of the, uh, the city of Timbuktu, and uh, he was attracted by the large amount of written materials that uh, he found uh, in the city. But he kept on hearing about a particular chronicle uh, that was really... Eventually interested in, but he couldn't find it, the Tariq al-Fattash. But at the point that he describes the chronicle, you know, with a very often quoted uh, uh, statement as the phantom book uh, of the Sudan. Now the Tariq al-Fattash will be soon, uh, you know, published in France. Uh, so less than twenty years after Dubois visited Timbuktu, uh, set three copies specifically that were identified uh, as different manuscripts of the Tariq al fatash arrived in France. And as I mentioned before, these two uh, scholars, Soudas and Delafosse, they started working together on an edition of the Arabic text, as well as uh, a translation into French. So basically, in 1913, with this publication, for the first time, scholars said at their disposal what they believed to be the Tariq al fatash which is what? It's a chronicle of Timbuktu, and of West Africa more in general, uh, from, uh, you know, a mythical period of time uh, that is not really easy to uh, locate, uh, uh, and all the way to the end of the uh, 1500s, so the end of the 16th century. And according to this narrative that was uh, uh, introduced originally by Hudassin uh, de la Fosse, the chronicle had been uh, written by a jurist and a scholar whose name was Mahmoud Kati, And this Mahmoud was supposed to have lived in the 1500s, but the chronicle as we have it was not, according to Udassan de la Fosse, the version of Mahmoud but was a chronicle that had been kind of updated by Mahmoud Qati's grandsons and eventually completed in the second half of the 17th century by his uh, uh, grandson, uh, that we know only as the son of Al-Muhtar or Ibn Al-Muhtar uh, in Arabic, who gave, in a way, the final shape uh, of uh, the chronicle. However, you know, scholars almost immediately realized that the, the text that Udass and de la had reconstructed, uh, although extremely historically important, uh, was kind of a mess. So basically, since 1914, uh, and all the way, I would say, until uh, you know, 2020, with my book. Uh, there's been several scholars who contributed uh, to the historiography of this peculiar chronicle. And, you know, I would say that almost all the scholars, the most important scholars from, uh, uh, you know, worked on West Africa uh, have written some crucial piece of the story of the Fatash. I can think of John Anwick, of Medina Lital, Nehemia Lefzion of Paulo de Moraes, etc. However, I would say that None of the solutions to the problems of mainly authorship, so who was in fact author of the chronicle and authenticity. So was the chronicle genuine? Were all those pieces written at the time in which they were supposed to be written or not? I've never really fully uh, fixed salt by the solutions provided by these uh, scholars. You know, I really, really like to cite all the time uh, uh, Medina Lita's comment. I would say a very personal comment. Huh? Uh, in her contribution on the chronicle, when uh, she says, uh, "Who does not uh, feel discomfort uh, while reading the chronicle, despite you know the critical apparatus uh, of uh, you know provided by us uh, and De La Fosse. So I kind of see myself uh, um, in this long line uh, of scholars who worked on the Tarikh al-Tatash, uh, and uh, that's why. Um, once in Cape Town, I think, I had all the pieces together uh, to contribute uh, on the historiography of the Chronicle, uh, uh, suddenly, you know, the, I felt like the, it was time uh, to try to fix the history of the Chronicle uh, to remedy the discomfort that Medina Lital, uh, you know, describes. It was actually shared by me and many other colleagues concerning the Chronicle. So at this time, uh, I started working on the al-Fatah. Uh, with another of my uh, colleagues and friends uh, who was at the time uh, uh, already at the University of Johannesburg uh, while I was in Cape Town, uh, my uh, colleague, Dr. Shahid uh, Mafi. You now, maybe, you know, we were inspired by his m- amazing uh, skills in making coffee, but I would say during uh, several nights, uh, you know, spent uh, in uh, in his house, I think we really, really managed to start making sense uh, of this chronicle that the scholars, you know, for now Almost a hundred, more than a hundred years, in fact. So we started comparing the manuscript from Timbuktu, the manuscripts from uh, the De Giromko collection, with the edition, and we realized that the complexity of the chronicle itself was actually way more, uh, you know, uh, complicated uh, than scholars had expected. So we argue in this article that uh, we published in 2014 uh, that. Uh, the 1913 edition that everybody has been working on, have been working on, is in fact not a critical, reliable critical edition of the chronicle, but it's a conflation of two different works, two different chronicles, one written in the 17th century and one written in the 19th century. So basically, what me and uh, Shahid Mati argued in that article. That we are not uh, facing uh, with the Tarikh al-Fatash, with the addition of the Tarikh al-Fatash, and all the work uh, to which some forged passages had been added. We were actually dealing with two different chronicles altogether. Yeah, right.
1: And that's very important, I think, how, how you highlight the subtle but very important difference about the variety of arguments that scholars have made before about the chronicle. And the arguments that you made, um, along with Shahid Mathi and also in your work about the, the chronicles, plural, um, that is not merely a 17th century chronicle that was modified in the 19th century, um, but it's actually a fully fledged 19th century chronicle that was added on to or merged with, um, and you can explain to us the details a little bit more, to that 17th century chronicle. Um, and, you know, in, in the course of preparing this interview, we talked a little bit about actually how, how, how these two texts come together. Um, the places where you see that they're not the same, the places where you see they're the same. And it was quite impressive, um, seeing that, you know, um, side to side comparison, um, of the texts. And so I would like you to explain to us a little bit more about, yeah, what is the crux of the argument you're making here about the nature of the chronicles and why was it? Imp- why is this important? Also, why is it important to establish um, that this is a 19th century work um, that was added onto the 17th century work? I think this will allow to really understand what you're trying to do with the book. Actually,
2: thank you, thank you for this, because especially you allow me to tackle uh, one of I think the most complicated uh, argument that I'm trying to make, because uh, I've already heard, for example, some people uh, uh, saying that. Uh, uh, their takeaway from my article with Shahid Mati in 2014 uh, is that we are arguing uh, that nothing was written in the 17th century. This is actually not what we are arguing. So let me explain this point, because I think this is really, really the core uh, of my argument. So in order to do this, uh, I need to get back uh, to what scholars have been saying about the Tarikh al-Fattashi and how scholars uh, have been uh, basically um, you know, dealing with the chronicle. So they believed uh, in the existence of a 17th century chronicle uh, that is the kind of a pristine text uh, that needs to be discovered and preserved, uh, to which some parts uh, were added in the 19th century. And indeed, I mean, it's obvious uh, the chronicle makes explicit reference uh, to the major character, one of the major characters of my book, was Ahmed Lobo. Who was the founder of the uh, you know the 19th century uh, caliphate of Hamdallah in what is today central Mali? So the scholarship, uh, in a way, developed uh, by trying to spot out uh, what is original, as what is not in the chronicle, and to cleanse uh, what is not original from the chronicle. You no, know, but I was not really. I've never been interested uh, in the original chronicle. I'm. I i do not know. My uh, my brain has always been fascinated and attracted uh, by the forgery. You know the, the things that were done in the nineteenth century, and I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Mark Block says, you know, in his famous, you know, historian's craft, uh, that we need to pay attention to forgeries because what is a forgery if not historical uh, evidence? So, attracted by this idea of seeing uh, the story of the nineteenth century, of exploring the story of the nineteenth century, I focused extensively on what people, as described as, uh, you know, as forgeries, but in fact. Uh, First of all, I realized that the, the difference between uh, the 19th century and the text that was produced in the 17th century was way larger than the scholars have um, realized so far. So I basically realized that uh, by reading uh, the chronicle closely, we noticed that the Tarikh al fattash cannot be simply described uh, as a, a refashioned way of the chronicle uh, from the 17th century. It is, in fact, a totally new chronicle written in the 19th century, whose author uh, is referred to in that little manuscript from uh, the Dijeronko collection that basically opened this kind of Pandora box uh, that led me to write the book. So, Nuhmuntair was a Fulani scholar who belonged to the entourage of Ahmed Dobo, the founder of Hamdallahi but he wrote the chronicle and he ascribed it uh, to... The 16th century and to Mahmoud Kati, the alleged author uh, that we introduced uh, earlier during our uh, conversation. But again, that's very important, going back to your question. When I say that this is a new chronicle, I'm not saying that Noh Bontair, uh, wrote uh, the text uh, from scratch. In fact, what Noh Bontair did uh, was using a pre existing 17th century chronicle uh, that was authored uh, by Ibn al-Mukhtar, the grandson of Mahmoud Khati, And uh, basically, what he did uh, is manipulating this older text uh, by cutting, adding, replacing. So the point here uh, is not just to understand uh, how much in terms of quantity, you know, uh, these two texts differ from each other. This is something that previous scholars have kind of already done, although I think uh, they underestimated this difference. But what is very important is to understand the qualitative transformation that the chronicle went through. Because by changing parts of the chronicle, reshaping the older chronicle by adding, cutting, and replacing, uh, the Tariq al-Fattash is eventually a new project uh, which is characterized by a different authorial intention uh, and it is aiming uh, to do a particular type of work on the ground, which is basically adding legitimacy to Ahmed Lobo and this newly founded Kelipito alhamdulillahi. And I mean, to be fair, Ahmed Lobo did need uh, this kind uh, of legitimacy insofar as he was basically uh, a nobody in the political and in the religious landscape of central Mali in the first half of the 19th century, it was not... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a member of any of the noble warrior elite uh, of the Fulani who were uh, you know, in charge of temporal power at the time, nor did he belong to any of the scholarly elite uh, of Genio, Timbuktu for example, of, uh, of the time. And, you know, I think it's really, really important for me to stress that we need to understand that these chronicles are not repositories of facts that were recorded by people who were actually almost taking pictures of the realities that they were living there these chronicles were political projects. And, you know, in this I'm really in-depth immensely, I would say, to the work of Paolo de Moraes uh, uh, Farias, uh, which shaped the way in which I'm understanding uh, the, the chronicle. So as such, I think my book uh, and my study of the Fatash, my approach to the Fatash is not some kind of philology that is aiming at reconstructing a sort of, you know, in a platonic way, the original uh, chronicle. My intention is not specifically to understand what the chronicles say, but to try to understand uh, the kind of work uh, that the chronicle does in its own historical context. So I'm not trying to grasp the meaning uh, of the text of the Fatash, but I'm trying to understand the type of work that the chronicle was meant to do on the ground. And at the same time, by exploring the chronicle uh, and a series of documents, the sort of satellite around the chronicle, uh, I'm trying to understand the word that the chronicle uh, uh, basically, that called the chronicle, you know, into being, and at the same time, that word, that the chronicle itself, wanted to impact upon. And by the way, just concluding, and then I pass the mic to you again, uh, Medina. Even the title, That's... yeah, even the title, Parikh al fatash is not uh, uh, from the 17th century. It is a 19th century uh, invention. Thank you.
1: Huh. Yeah. So, Yes, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Actually, at, at this point, I was planning to ask you about your research process and we will get there. But before we do that, I want to jump ahead and talk a little bit about this world, this 19th century world that the Tariq Fatah was born into, um, the chronicle and its title, as you, as you just mentioned. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What was this caliphate of Hamdullah, um, or this, this Dina, this Dina of the Masina, as it is, uh, designated sometimes, What was this world that these people were trying to shape so much that they came up with this project of of writing a new historical chronicle? What was going on? Set up the context for us a little bit.
2: Yeah, thank you, Medina. And also thank you for actually introducing the other ways in which this state was referred to. You know, I call it the Caliphate, Alhamdulillah, i from the name of the capital, uh, but uh, it is also locally known, actually, Locally, is more known as the Dina or the Masina, the Empire of Masina, etc. So I stress uh, the term Caliphate because uh, I want to underline that this state was a theocratic state. Just for us to locate it on a map, it was uh, established uh, in the first half of the 19th century in, uh, I would say, the middle Niger, uh, roughly at the beginning, you know, from the beginning of the inland uh, delta Niger. Uh, southwest of, you know, the city of Jenne, for example, and it goes all the way to the Niger-Bend, uh, I would say, east uh, of Timbuktu, but maybe not as far uh, as uh, Gao, the ancient capital of the uh, um, you know the Songhai Empire. So why do I stress the term caliphate, the term theocracy, you know, in uh, in the place of maybe, you know, those that are more commonly used on the ground uh, in Mali, especially the dina that you mentioned before? Because what I'm I'm using these terms to stress a major shift that occurs with Hamdallahi in terms of understanding uh, the sources of authority of the ruler. So in the case of Hamdallahi, and contrary to what happened before, you know, when we had uh, Fulani warrior elites and the Bambara warrior elite of Segu in a way occupying the space that eventually would become part of Hamdallahi, where, uh, again, warrior elites uh, and in which authority rested, basically, on lineage. So, at the time of, alhamdulillahi, authority got tied, became, for the first time, tied to Islamic knowledge, and I would say to Islamic sources of legitimacy. When I say knowledge, I mean both, I would say, empirical and mystical. So, you know, the kind of knowledge you can learn from the book, but also this kind of more experiential, mystic type of access to the divine mystery. Okay, but uh, it was not just uh, knowledge uh, that uh, became crucial in the uh, construction of authority of Ahmed Lobo. It feels uh, it felt uh, at a certain point in time uh, that uh, simply knowledge was not enough to justify the emergence of Ahmed Lobo as a new man in the West African landscape of the time. So Tariq al Batash creates uh, a further Set of layers that strengthened the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo. And here are the three words that I use uh, in my title. So Ahmed Lobo is constructed in the Tariq al as a sultan that I use here as a synonym in a way of a temporal ruler, as the inheritor of a long line of kings that dates back to the Asya, the Sonni, the, Empire, the emperor of Mali, of Ghana, etc., etc. But Ahmed Lobo is also. A caliph, so in a way, caliph here indicates more some kind of religiously religiously sanctioned ruler. But in fact, uh, not just the caliph, but a particular kind of caliph. So Ahmed Lobo is identified with an es- eschatological figure that is the twelfth, so the last of the twelve caliphs uh, mentioned by the Prophet Muhammad uh, in one of uh, very famous uh, hadith. Uh, which basically says that before the end of the war, there would have been 12 uh, um, caliphs. So he's identified uh, as this powerful uh, eschatological figure, uh, but it's also, third uh, element of my title, uh, Ahmed Lobo is also identified as the renewer of the faith. So this also refers uh, to a hadith of the prophet, uh, who is reported to have said uh, that every century will witness the arrival of a person that is sent by God to revive the faith and prevent Islam from degenerating. So basically, the Tarikh al fatash constructs claims for a ruler who represents a very new type of ruler in the West African landscape. Yeah, thank you.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So, Ahmed Olobo,
1: indeed, um, you ascribe him this um, these three qualifiers, um, which are also the title of your book, Sultan, Caliph, and the Renew of the Faith. And he is very important in the story, but actually he's kind of a secondary character in your book. The one character that really is center and front and that... Um, I think you do really well. Good job, great job at um introducing and explaining to us everything that he try- attempts to achieve in the region at the time, uh, is obviously uh Tahir, uh So tell us more about the who is the author of the so-called forgery and who yeah. ushers in that political project. So tell us more about him. Who who is that who is that character? Um what do we know about him? And um also like, yeah, what, how did you become more interesting in trying to in trying to lay out more about specifically his life and what he did in the caliphate?
2: <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's a, a complicated question to uh, answer because Noh uh, uh, Buntair is clearly, you know, the major uh, actor uh, in my book, along with Ahmad Lobo. But we don't really know that much uh, about Noh although he's very, very prominent uh, in, uh, you know, the, for example, in the oral traditions uh, of Amdallai. The issue is that uh, master. Of uh, the information that are transmitted uh, on Nuhbuntai tend to be highly unreliable. So, for example, uh, he has a very long lifespan. So, if you know, we take uh, for granted, you know, the, um, the content of some of the oral tradition collected, for example, by uh, Ampate Bao, of course a major uh, uh, scholar who contributed to the history of Andalai, uh, Norberto would have lived for like you know 130 years or something like that, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Uh, you know goes beyond you know every optimistic uh, you know expense of life, especially in the 19th century. So there is a lot of issues that don't really make sense uh, in the life of Norberto. So what I try to do, I try to see through the uh, works that he produced, uh, because we do have some references to things that he wrote during his life. Uh, and uh, through some of the documentation uh, that makes reference to Nuhu So what we basically can say with solid basis is that uh, Nuhu was, I would say, a quite renowned uh, scholar from the Middle Niger, who joined uh, the project of Ahmed Lobo, contrary to what believed before my book, quite early in uh, the beginning of the history of Rundallahim. And because of his, you know, stature as a, as a, a status as a scholar, as a renowned scholar, he basically became the second in command, the right hand of Ahmed Lobo. And he was the person who would be the closest advisor of Ahmed Lobo all the way until the death of Ahmed Lobo himself. He played a crucial role in the transition from Ahmed Lobo to his son. You can call him Ahmed II. So Ahmed, the son of Ahmed Lobo. Uh, and there's an interesting anecdote that I think can uh, give you the, uh, an idea of how important was Buntair uh, in the history of Uh Traditions uh, say that Ahmed II felt uh, unfit to replace his father as you know ruler of Andalai, so he asked Buntair to become the second caliph of Andalai. But you know respecting the decision taken by Ahmed Lobo. On the country endorsed the uh, you know the position of Ahmed Dobbo and he became in a way the uh, the tutor uh, of the second Caliph of Andalai, only disappearing from the political history of Andalai, only the intellectual history of Andalai later on. Uh, uh, you know, at the time of the third uh, um, Caliph of Andalai, Ahmed the Third. So uh, Norbuntire was a crucial intellectual uh, from the Middle Niger. I mean, we know of him. Uh, uh, he wrote like a, a book on uh, um, on Arabic grammar. He wrote a book on, uh, um, I would say, the history of the prophet. He wrote uh, several letters because it feels like, you know, he has been in charge of the, uh, you know, the official correspondence of the estate. And there was also a large amount, there is a large amount of materials that he exchanged with uh, the family, the very famous scholarly family of these uh, uh, teachers, the Kunta, who are based in Timbuktu and the desert area around uh, Timbuktu. But you know, what I want to mention, of course, is the author of the real author of the Tariq al Fatash, famous intellectual from the Middle Niger, uh, student uh, of one of the most important intellectuals of the time. And I would say most important, the closest advisor of Ahmed Lobo. Just for you to have an idea, you know, I have a picture in my book that has been uh, graciously uh, given to me by uh, another friend and colleague, uh, Mamadou Jallo, a picture of the mausoleum uh, of uh, Ahmed Lobo in Hamdallahi. Of course, it's a later mausoleum. It was not uh, built at the time of Hamdallahi. But anyway, Ahmed Lobo is buried, uh, you know, in this area. And on his side is his son Ahmed II, but there is a third character that is buried, is buried with Ahmed Lobo and his son. in the same mausoleum. It is uh Noah
0: Yeah.
2: So a very
1: important character for the for the caliphate indeed. Yeah. Um and so so he's the author of the 19th century work. Um he's the one who writes it, as you said, to usher in a specific political project. So Did it work? What he was trying to achieve by writing this um, chronicle, did he achieve it? Like what work did the chronicle actually do at the moment at which it was produced in the region?
2: So what did the chronicle work? Well, I can answer in several ways, it worked. Uh, If we basically uh, see that his kind of trickery, his forgery, if you wanna still uh, stick to the term forgery, Went basically unnoticed uh, in its complexity until now. So, in this, it was very successful. <laughs> was it affecting on, effective on the ground in terms of circulation? So, were people aware uh, of the claims of the Fatash? Absolutely, yes. So, there is a very, very large amount of manuscripts uh, uh, on the ground uh, in Malian collections uh, that uh, um, you know cite uh, parts of the Tarikh al Fatash. So the Tariq al-Fattash was very widespread on the ground. It's interesting because we have letters, uh, we have a pamphlet of propaganda, we have a fatwa, for example, uh, who uses uh, pieces of the Tariq al-Fattash. Uh, then we have actually very few copies uh, of the Tariq al-Fattash uh, itself. Uh, but in terms of you know being uh, the claims of the Chronicle known on the ground, we can say, yes, you, it, the, the Chronicle was successful. Now, did it work in terms of providing legitimacy to Hamzallahi? This is a different story for several reasons. First of all, you know, if I get, and I suspect so, the timeline of the production of the Tariq al-Fattash, the Chronicles was written very late in the life of Ahmed Lobo, and I'm sure, you know, we will have time to talk about this because it is related to diplomacy in the region. So I argue that the Chronicle will be written at the end of the life of Ahmed Lobbo. So when the chronicle was produced and started circulating, uh, Ahmed Lobbo basically reached almost the end of his career. So he dies, uh, and although it feels uh, like uh, the descendants of Ahmed Lobo, of course, uh, had uh, to uh, you know hang to the chronicle uh, as a way to legitimize the very foundation of Hamdallahi, the main character who is legitimized in the chronicle dies. Okay. So this, in a way, makes the Tariq al-Fattash uh, an, a project that arrived too, maybe too late uh, in the history of Ahmed Lobo. We don't really have any kind of explicit uh, um, text uh, that addresses uh, the claims of the Tariq al fatash with the exception of one. This is a fantastic, actually, letter uh, that is written from a leading scholar from the Sokoto Caliphate, so from what is today's northern Nigeria, Abdul Qadir Dan Tafa. He has a re- response to one of the pamphlets of propaganda that were written by Nuhu Buntai. and honestly, Abdul Qadir Dan Tafa from Sokoto destroys the claims of the Tariq al-Fatah, which is kind of interesting, you know, to understand the, um, you know, the local approach to these uh, issues uh, at the time, uh, is the ground on the basis of which Abdul Qadir Dantafa attacks the claims of the fatash Because all the Western scholars starting from Dubois always said, okay, the tarikh al fatash has some claims uh, that were forged later on because you, you cannot have a prophecy. So the core of the tarikh al fatash is a prophecy foretelling the arrival of Ahmed Lobo. So Abdul Qadir Dantafa Tafa does not question the possibility of a, for, uh, of a prophecy. But what he does, uh, he questions the accuracy of quotation. So Abdul Qadir Dhan Tafa questions uh, that Noh did not really understand very well the sources that he's citing. So as such, his argument is weak. I think this is very fascinating. Then there is also hints to some kind of other resistance to the, um, the claims of the Tariq al fatash in the sarcastic statement of a later uh, scholar from the area of Timbuktu, from the Kunta family, the very famous scholar, Ahmed al-Bakai, who kind of patronizes uh, the Fulani in a completely different context. We're talking about, you know, 15, 20 years after the death of Ahmed Tobo. He said that basically the Fulani are kind of gullible. They believe everything uh, that they are told, and then I'm almost quoting, you know, by memory, even... They believe if somebody tells them that the 12th caliph uh, mentioned by the Prophet would have come from amongst them. Of course, it's a clear reference to the Tariq al-Fattash. So again, it's it's a complex uh, response. How was, was it or not the Tariq al-Fattash? I mean, effective uh, in shaping the world uh, that he was trying to impact upon. Yeah.
1: Yeah, as you may imagine, I'm not very happy with the fulani bashing going on in the response of Ahmed al-Bakai. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but something I wanted to ask you, uh, for you to talk a little bit more about is these, indeed, these diplomatic relations with the Sokoto Caliphate, you devote an entire chapter to them, um, laying out sort of, in trying to explain yet yeah, the, the, the type of work that the Tariq Refetash was trying to achieve and whether or not it worked. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, it's only to a certain extent. Um, and it also gives rise to, to these exchanges among scholars, uh, from Hamdallah and the Sokoto Caliphate, in which they really do not mince their words at all, in the way they're talking to each other. That was actually really great, um, how you showed that in in, in your primary sources. So tell us more about that, these diplomatic relations and scholarly relations between the Caliphate of Hamdallah and the Sokoto Caliphate.
2: Yeah. and Indeed, you know, this was, I would say, the chapter that I enjoyed writing the most. It came out quite... Quite easy, quite natural, because as you say, the sources are so, you know, colorful, you know, that you never stop, uh, you know, reading these things with joy. Anyway, so I really think that uh, the diplomatic relationship between the and Sokoto are fascinating for several reasons. So first of all, is this issue of the type of sources, very interesting uh, materials, but also because we don't really know that much about pre-colonial uh, intra-African diplomacy. So this is like you know, a very important case that goes beyond the topic of my book. Uh, the sort also an, an invitation uh, to uh, uh, excavate more, you know, the archives to see how the states were uh, talking to each other. And it's, of course, it's also very important because uh, the relationship between Sokoto and Hamdallah is extremely close uh, but very problematic. So we know that uh, uh, you know Sokoto Caliphate is founded basically 14 years before uh, Hamdallah. But Usman Dan Fodio, the founder of Sokoto, had showed interest in expanding, you know, his movement to the west. So from what is today's northern Nigeria into what is, you know, the Mali and Burkina Faso border, all the way to Timbuktu and uh, to the area of Masina. when, Alhamdulillah, he basically will eventually emerge. So he was actually actively seeking for. Uh, I would say local proxy emirs who could uh, start uh, like a local uh, dependent state uh, in uh, central Mali that would be, in a way, hierarchically subjected uh, to Sokoto. And indeed, when Ahmed Lobo emerged uh, as um, a leading I mean, scholar and also revolutionary leader in the region, he asked for permission, and I would say most likely also for support, uh, to conduct his rebellions against the Fulani at the Bambara uh, in his region. But eventually, you know, when his messengers arrive in Sokoto, Usman Fodio dies, there is some kind of quarrels between his uh, brother and his son for, uh, you know, um, for the uh, succession to, uh, as rulers of Sokoto. So basically, this thing delays a little bit uh, Sokoto's intervention, and Ahmed Lobo actually manages to do the job by himself. So he gets rid of the Bambara of Segu, of the local uh, Fulani warrior elite, and he establishes, alhamdulillah, as an independent state from Sokoto. So from that moment on, there will be always an ambiguity. So the uh, leading uh, uh, elite of Sokoto would see alhamdulillah as a dependent state. While alhamdulillah would always see itself uh, as an independent state from Sokoto. So basically, there will be like a, a strong tension, you know, with peaks, uh, of tension in time uh, that is really, really captured uh, in uh, the documentation that uh, you, Medina, were referring to. But really, as you said, you know, there's sometimes very harsh words exchanged between uh, the scholars, you know, kind of representative of the two uh, factions. You know, I could cite some of the um, harsh words exchanged between uh, uh, these two elites, but just, you know, to kind of uh, capture uh, the way in which Ahmed Lobo used to, uh, you know, handle his quarrels. He was not a shy person. He was not a person who would uh, keep quiet. Uh, I would like to mention, you know, uh, another of his quarrels, not with the Sokoto leaders, uh, but with a local Fulani, um, you know, uh, leader who lived east of the uh, the region of Hamdallahi. His name was uh, Giladjo Ambodejo, who basically complains that Ahmed Lobo does not confirm him once his area is uh, uh, basically incorporated in Amdala, does not confirm me as a ruler of the region. And Ahmed Lobo basically writes to him saying that uh, he understands power as rooted in piety and knowledge. Then he answered, as for your piety, it is questionable. Concerning your knowledge is practically non-existent. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So, well, that so, was great, actually, when you inserted it in the book. It's, yeah, and they're really writing to each other like that.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, concluding the word on Sokoto, just to get back to something that I mentioned before, uh, I think it was also extremely important for me to reconstruct uh, this um, uh, diplomatic relationship uh, and the up and downs of this diplomatic relationship, uh, because I think uh, that uh, we can uh, date uh, Tarikh al-Fattah is a 19th century product, uh, to the uh, late 1830s, uh, through reading uh, the correspondence between Sokoto and Hamdallah, they reached a new peak uh, at the end of the 1830s, uh, when the first generation of Sokoto leaders, in a way, had settled their dispute with Ahmed Lobo. So there's a new generation that comes to power uh, and open again uh, the uh, the problem of the dependency of Hamdallah from Sokoto.
1: Wow. I, m- moving a little bit away from the, the content of the book, which I could talk to you about all day long, um, I was really curious reading this about your your research process as well, like what the research process was like. Because as you just explained, I mean, obviously you have to, you know, writing working on the history of Hamdalai takes you to a lot of different other regions. Um, as you track these manuscripts, as you have to figure out sort of the, the, the ramifications that the, the, the main manuscript, the Teresh Fatash, sort of had. So I'm really curious about your, your research process. And if you can, ask, can tell us a little bit more about that, uh, where does one end up where they're trying to write the history of this manuscript and the history of the Caliphate?
2: Oh, everywhere, literally, because, uh, as you know, uh, I started this research in France. And uh, I must also say, you know, sometimes people uh, manage, you know, to really uh, plan their research very well. They know what they want to do. I had no idea. I mean, I found these documents and my research starts from a random finding. Okay, so intentionality behind uh, the beginning of this research was zero, honestly. So I found this manuscript that opened the world. As I say, it opened the Pandora box that basically took me, of course, to Mali through South Africa. But uh, it took me basically everywhere in uh, in West Africa because manuscripts that I used uh, come from Senegal, from Nigeria, from Mauritania, from Niger. But I also conducted uh, a failed mission uh, looking for uh, copies of the Tariq al-Pattash uh, in northern Ivory Coast and uh, in Ghana. Uh, I was again with my colleague Dr. Jaget in northern Ivory Coast in Ghana looking for copies of the Pattash. Uh, and uh, basically that was like a... A very interesting uh, trip, looking for uh, manuscript described in uh, two catalogues uh, that uh, we discovered were basically forged. So <laughs> we have a forgery in a forgery. So uh, it's not just the Tarikh al fatash that can be described as a forgery, but also two catalogues describing manuscript from Ghana and Ivory Coast uh, that listed copies of the Tarikh al fatash we discovered being a forgery by themselves you can uh, write this little, little interesting article that I wrote uh, in a quote with uh, Mohamed Jagete uh, that talks about uh, the story of the forged catalogs uh, and the manuscripts that we couldn't find in Ivory Coast in Ghana. So, of course, the first stage uh, was uh, that of collecting together uh, these materials. Uh, and then finally, you know, uh, the story of the Hatash started looking a little bit like a tazel, you know? So we had all these little uh, pieces uh, that uh, I had to uh, uh, start putting together, and uh, once you know I knew what was going on, huh, and I thought the process was basically done. Huh, I actually realized that I still had another substantial issue to face. So I was dealing with two stories in fact, not with one, because I was dealing with the story of the Fatash, but there was also he's dealing with the history of the political That was really, really the toughest. Uh, Part of my work uh, was how to combine these two stories that are relatively, uh, you know, different. Uh, also in terms of methodology, more of a philology, more of, you know, classical history. The second part of the story. So how could I tell uh, these two separate but intertwined histories? Uh, actually, was very complicated to uh, to figure out, uh, and uh, well, basically it took me ten years to understand how to tell uh, to tell this story. Yeah.
1: Well, having read it, I can tell you that it fits very well together, and it's all really fluid. Um, it, it comes together really beautifully in the book, and I hope that everybody will read it. You know, in addition to listening to that inter- to this interview, because um, it's done really well. Um, listen, I, I, I mean, we've taken up enough of your time already today, but uh, before we fully conclude, I was just wondering what projects, uh, small or big, it does not matter you are currently working on and engaged on at the moment?
2: A lot of things. And I mean, also this kind of summer uh, with the COVID-19 and no trips uh, at the horizon, uh, most likely will make uh, some of these projects I'm working on, uh, uh, you know, see the light. So basically, I mean, I I want to just focus on one particular project that is really related to the book that, you know, we discussed at length today. Because um, one of the things that made me uncomfortable was the fact that I did not provide in my uh, analytical piece in my book, Sultan and Renewal of the Faith, Uh, I do not make available uh, the 17th century chronicle by Ibn al-Muqtar and the 19th century Tarikh al-Pattash by Nohubun Tayyab, but ascribed to uh, Mahmoud Kati. I do not make them available for scholars, both, you know, for for scholars to further develop my arguments or to, you know, contest my argument but also you know for students who might actually be interested you know handling these chronicles in a more reliable way so what I'm doing right now I'm working uh, on a project that has been generously sponsored by an neH grant uh, of an edition of a parallel compared edition and translation into English of the two 17th and 19th century uh, texts and, you know, I'm very grateful uh, for the grant that I received from the NEH because it allowed me to bring on board uh, two colleagues uh, who were working uh, with, you know, great enthusiasm with me on the project. Uh, so I have Ali Jakite from uh, Hill Museum and Manuscript Library and Zachary Wright from uh, Northwestern University in Qatar. And uh, we are actually at quite advanced stage uh, with, uh, with the book, this new book that we'll have... Uh, sort of uh, introductory essay on the historiography of the chronicle, Uh, and then we'll have the two chronicles finally separated for people who want to, you know, read maybe only the 19th century or only the 17th century, or want to compare the two texts. And also we will have chapters uh, in which we will basically reflect uh, on uh, which kind of stories uh, the two texts finally separated can tell us about 17th and 19th century West Africa. And we've been already contracted by the British Academy. And the edition will be published by the Fontes Historia Africana uh, series. Actually, in fact, uh, we should deliver the book uh, very soon. Yeah. So yeah.
1: I'm sure these deadlines are, are facing you then. Uh, but that's, that's really exciting. Um, I think it will be a really ge- great uh, compliment as well to your book. I mean, separately they stand fine, but it will, it will be great to have both books together and be able to read them. Um, And if I understood correctly, there's also a translation of this current book in the work, uh, Translation to French, is that correct?
2: Yes, absolutely. So this has been uh, uh, sponsored by my University of Illinois, because one of the things that really, really, really kind of leaves me uh, disappointed is that uh, not much of the scholarship that is produced uh, in, uh, I would say, in Europe and North America circulates in Maori unless it is in French. So what I did, uh, I managed to secure funds uh, to have my uh, book translated into French. So it is now in the process of being translated into French. And uh, it will be published uh, in Mali by the Ahmed Baba Institute uh, within uh, the c- their new series of publication. Actually, the Ahmed Baba Institute has been very, very active uh, in uh, publishing new editions uh, of manuscripts that are hosted by the center itself. So this is a project uh, uh, the way I, I like to see this project, uh, that yes, I wrote it, uh, but it is a project that mainly uses Malian uh, archives. Uh, that will be tra- is being translated by a Malian uh, translator, professional translator uh, Seydou Traore, and it will be published by a Malian institution, the Ahmed Baba Institute, hopefully to circulate with the Malian audience. Yeah,
1: well, that would be really fantastic, also, um, and I can't wait to see how how the work keeps blossoming, um, you know, both both here in the English-speaking world, but also in Mali, it will be really important. Um all right, well this this concludes our our interview. Again for our listeners, this was Dr. Mauro Nobili presenting his brand new book, Sultan, Caliph and the Renewal of the Faith, Ahmed Lobo, the Tarikh al-Fatash, and the Making of an Islamic State in West Africa, which was just published in 2020 with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Mauro. I'm really excited about the book, and I hope that everybody who listened to this will go ahead and read it. It is really a fantastic, fantastic read.
2: Thank you very much, Marina. That was actually lots of fun. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk uh, about the book. You know, there was a lot uh, of my time uh, and a lot of my enthusiasm behind it. So, thank you, really, really, very much.